As we start this morning, I have, a, I have a question to ask, and I have a question I want you guys to consider, and here it is. It's this. Uh, what has you in its hold? What has you in its hold? And I don't want you to rush to necessarily answer that or even to discredit that or just, ah, uh, there's nothing. And here's, here's maybe a couple things I invite you to consider as you're thinking about what has you in its hold. What do you feel like you can't live without? Or what has the ability to make or break your day? What has the power to make you sad or to make you filled, be filled with elation? And again, that, that turns the tide of your day. What's the thing like that if you lost it, it would leave you beyond just a little bit sad, but it might even make you feel depressed. Like your friends would be worried about you. What do you have the tendency to attach your identity to? Or if you could gain just one thing, what would it be? And what would you be willing to do to get it? Last way I'll phrase it would be this way. What's the absence or or the loss of what tempts you or would tempt you even to question the goodness of God? What's the thing that if you lost it or if you didn't have it, it'd make you think about whether or not God is good or not? This morning, we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Philippians, and we're opening up Philippians chapter 3, kicking it off this week, and we're going to be talking about a few different things, Uh, confidence and belief, and talk about what's our confidence in and what do we actually believe in, righteousness, what is it and how is it gained, and then also resurrection power. What does that mean in in the scriptures when Paul or anybody else in the New Testament speaks of or talks about resurrection power as it applies to us today? These are key things that we're going to be thinking about and talking about, and so I want to invite you to open up Philippians chapter 3 if you have your Bible. If not, it'll be on the screen. Uh, But we're going to journey through and, and talk about these things, confidence and belief, righteousness, and resurrection power. And so Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. And you're going to notice this has a slightly different tone than the rest of the book. This letter we've talked about is a, it's a letter of friendship, a letter of encouragement that Paul, who planted this church about 10, 12 years ago, is writing from prison with great and deep affection to this church. Um, and this is what he says this week in chapter 3. He says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So again, you might hear in there a little bit of a different tone. Paul, in chapter 3, he has a little bit of a defensiveness. There's a little bit of an edge to him. He's a little bit heated here, if you will. And here's why. Because he starts off by saying, I'm calling you up to something. I'm calling you up to joy. I'm calling you up to joy by talking to you about something that I have no problem talking to you about over and over and over and over again. And as you hear this, you might think that I'm beating a drum over and over and over again and you're tired of it. But he says, it's no problem for me to do that. And it's actually of great benefit for you that I do this. And here's why. What he's talking about is righteousness. Now, when I say the word righteousness, I'm going to give you a second to think. What do, you, what do you think of? What's your working definition of righteousness? Do you think you're right in that? Uh-huh. You might be. I don't know. Here's the working definition of righteousness that I want you to be considering this morning. This is, this is the original Greek definition. Often we think of right standing with God, right? Some of you probably thought of that in your head, and, and, and you're right. Even more true to the definition of it, though, is, is the approval of God. What righteousness means in the New Testament, most often when Paul talks about it, is the approval or the acceptance of God. Meaning this, it's what is deemed right or acceptable by the Lord himself upon his own examination of it. Meaning God with his own eyes, his holy eyes, his righteous eyes, his just eyes, the truest eyes in all existence, with his eyes he looks at something and God alone has the ability to judge, is this thing good or not? Is this thing acceptable or not? Is this thing worthy or not of my approval? This is what Paul's talking about. So this is the working definition we need to have as we're talking about this here. And Paul says, I, I'm getting worked up about this, and I'm, I'm getting a little edgy about this, and I'm going to talk to you about this over and over and over again. Why? Because it's for your benefit. And here's why. He says, look out or watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, he uses three different phrases there, but Paul's talking about one group of people. It's not three different ones. It's one group of people, and these were people that have, they go by the name of Judaizers. Again, if you're familiar with Paul's writing and you're familiar with Galatians or Corinthians, you know that Paul spent actually a lot of time, and the reason why those books are far more dogmatic and polemic in in nature is that he's having to refute these teachings of these Judaizers. And who the Judaizers were is that they were Jews or Gentile converts to Christianity who believed or said that they believed that salvation came through Jesus, but also through keeping the Old Testament laws given to Moses and God's people. They were still believing that even though Christ had already come and Christ had died and Christ had resurrected and Christ was seated at the right hand of God and Christ had said and God had said and the Spirit had said and everything was testifying to Jesus being the one true way to salvation and righteousness, these Judaizers were still holding on to this belief that it was Jesus and it was our adherence to the law and in particular to circumcision. Now, I'm not going to go into detail what circumcision is. You get that. You're adults. But... What's important about it for our sake is that circumcision in the Old Testament, it was an outward visible sign of Israel's covenant relationship with God, okay? That's the working definition we're going to go with here. Just keep it simply as that. It was the Old Testament covenant, outward visible sign of Israel's covenant relationship with God. And the reason why Paul was so adamant against the Judaizers, it wasn't because he himself lacked in Jewish pedigree or because he lacked in performance according to the law. No, he he gave us that whole list and he, he shows us who he is and what he's done as a Jew, But the reason why this was such a big issue was because the the Judaizers were teaching that Jesus' atoning work on the cross wasn't quite enough to secure salvation. 
And that human beings had to add something or do something else in order to have this righteousness, this acceptance in the eyes of God. And Paul says this is a really, really big deal. It's a really big deal because it had the ability, this teaching, it had the ability to derail this young church. It had the ability to derail these young Christians. It has the ability to derail anyone that would actually go along with that line of thinking and believe that Jesus' death and resurrection isn't enough for me to be viewed as acceptable and loved and cared for in God's eyes. But I've got to then do this other stuff as well. I've got to add some stuff on top of that to make it so that I am acceptable in God's sight. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not, that's not cool. We're not having that. We're not playing with that. So again, I'll talk to you about this over and over again because this actually is tied to your ability to live a joyful Christian life. It's tied to your ability to understand and know who you are. And Paul was concerned that if the Philippians believed the Judaizers, they'd end up trusting in their own sin-tainted works as opposed to just living in in faith in, in Jesus. And what it would end up doing is moving them farther and farther away from Jesus as opposed to moving them closer and closer to God in personal relationship through Jesus Christ. And so Paul gets all worked up and he goes, no, that's not cool. He goes one step further and he says, it's also actually not about circumcision. It's not about performing any of these Old, Old Testament ceremonial acts of the law. But what it's about is it's about being a people who worship God in his, through his spirit, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Basically what Paul's saying here, he's saying, look, if if the door to salvation could be opened up to anyone by any combination of human pedigree or merit or action, he's saying, "I, I, I myself would be the only one that actually could have the ability, more so than these Judaizers, to unlock that magical code and be accepted before God. He says, but listen, I couldn't do that. Why? Because it's not about what we do. It's about believing and trusting in Jesus. I want to read for you in this list that Paul talks about. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, confidence in my acceptance before God's eyes. If I wanted to go with the Judaizers down that train of thought, he says, why? Because I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And he comes to the end of that and he says, but whatever I had had gain, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, if anybody again was going to be able to earn their own righteousness in front of God, it'd be me. He said, but I couldn't. Why? Because you can't. It's not possible. See, righteousness before God does what? It, It demands perfect holiness in our thought, in our desires, in our words, and in our actions. And Paul's saying it's impossible. Even as well as he adhered to it, it's impossible to do it perfectly. No human can. Why? Because we're all bent towards sin. And no one, through their own life, through their own actions, can gain the approval of God. And so Paul kind of is leaving us with this question as he's speaking rhetorically here is what? So what do we do? And maybe you're asking that yourself this morning too. What do I do? Because as I answered that question this morning, and you went through that list, there actually are certain things that I, that I put my identity in. There are certain things that if I lost them, it caused me to doubt the goodness of God. There are certain things that I look to, and they make or break my day. And so what, what do I do? There are certain things, if I'm honest, that I live my life, and I hold those as a way in which I view myself, whether or not I'm acceptable before God. So what 
do I do? Paul says this, he says, put no confidence in the flesh and believe only in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believe and understand that God credits Jesus' lifelong record of perfection on your behalf to your record. And so again, you and I go, yeah, yeah, I know that. Like, I know that. We talk about that. I've read that a lot. My parents taught me that. I've grown up understanding that. And so I'm still sitting here stuck with this question of, 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 of what do I do? See, Paul's passionate about this battle because what I think Paul was experiencing, and I'll be honest, here's what I experience a lot as a pastor, is that as I talk to people, people who have followed Jesus for a long time or people who are new in the faith, there's this constant sense in our day and in our time, and I think in Paul's day, that we're chasing after trying to feel good enough. We constantly feel like we're chasing after trying to feel or be acceptable enough always on the outside of God's love or God's acceptance, and even sometimes on the outside of God's people. Does anybody relate to that? I know I do sometimes. It's a real weight. It's a real thing. Some of you were brave enough just to raise your hands. Yeah. We unfortunately feel constantly like I'm on the outside of God's grace. And, and so that's why Paul gets so upset. Here's what, here's, here's, here's what I want to do. Paul talks about here, he talks about thinking. He says, if anyone thinks that they are worthy of confidence in the flesh, in verse 4, he says, I have more reason for that. So I want to talk this morning a little bit about our thinking, and we sang about it this morning. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And again, he goes through that list. Here's what I think our modern list might be like, and some of the reasons why maybe we struggle with our understanding of our righteousness and the belief in what it actually is. For us, I think our modern list might potentially read like this for some. I was born into a Christian home. I was born into a certain socioeconomic status. I was born into a certain ethnicity. I was well instructed from the time that I was a child in the ways of Jesus. I was confirmed in certain religious systems. I was baptized even in, under certain churches. I received a Christian education. My parents sent me to Christian school. I've been a member of a church congregation my whole life. I received such and such high level of education, this standard that was sent by, set by my Christian parents and the Christian community around me. I hold this in this title, again, set as a standard of acceptance in the eyes of my Christian parents and the community around me. I make such and such amount of money, and I even give. I even give 10% of it, which again, my parents taught me. Aren't they? Isn't that awesome? It might be this, that I view and I understand my work as worship. There's no way I idolize that. And, and so I, I work a long hours. I work hard hours because it's out of worship to God. It's excellence. And doesn't God call us to that? We might say, I even give, again, certain amounts of money. And I do it without issue, like it's no big deal. Or we might say, I, I spend certain amount of times every day or every week in quiet time with Jesus. I'm, I'm faithful now. At least three times a week, I'm there. It's just me and it's Jesus and it's me and my Bible, like I'm there. And, and I serve in these places. I serve here, and I serve there, and I'm doing these things. Like, isn't that amazing? See, I think what Paul does here is he boils this down, and he says to us, he says, these are all good things. His list was pretty good, wasn't it? And these are all even advantageous to a certain degree, right? He had some advantage through what he was born, and even that list, like there's some things we go, oh, yeah, there's advantage in that. But what Paul is reminding us is that we cannot and we must not regard any of these things, even that are good, as giving us a place of confidence before God. Why? Because it's not necessary. Because it's not necessary. 
See, one of the things that Paul is trying to remind the Philippian church here as he's trying to help them battle off these lies of the Judaizers and trying to help us battle off the lies of our culture and even some of our upbringing or just different things around us would be this. Good things actually become bad things when they become ultimate things. You guys track with me on that? Good things, raised in a Christian home, gone to Christian school, baptized in such and such a system, trained up in such and such, such and such a degree. You name the list. Paul's giving us his list. Good things, they actually become bad things when they become ultimate things. When they become ruling things in our life that we look to and hold up as a way in which we view ourselves as acceptable, not just in our own eyes, not just in the eyes of the community around me, not just in the eyes of the city around me, but in the eyes of God himself. And some of us might be sitting here going, I don't do that. It stops, it stops with just me. No, 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 it doesn't. At least in my head it doesn't, if I'm honest. Because we can't decouple those things. See, the thing that Paul is getting at also is this. When he says, if anyone thinks that he has reason for boasting, I have more. And the word think, tied to this word belief, is really important. I want to talk about that for a second. See, what we believe versus what we think we believe is really key as part of what Paul's getting at. The reality is that all of our behavior is actually based on our belief, not on our knowledge, not on what we think we know. Some of you guys have gone through the Conquer series, and you might recall a man uh, named Dr. James Reeves. And Dr. James Reeves is a psychologist. Hey, a Dr. James Reeves fan in the house. He's a psychologist, and uh, he's a pastor of a church in Dallas-Fort Worth. And um, he says that one of the problems with us in the Western American church is that we love to acquire knowledge. And what we do with this knowledge is that we think that acquiring this knowledge or acquiring this information up here, we think that it will save us. We think that the knowledge itself shows that we're growing in our, in our sanctification. That this knowledge, based upon, again, our society and our culture, which is so knowledge-bent, right? Why, did, why does Google even exist, right? It's really about this knowledge, we think that that saves us. We think that that, if I know more stuff about the Bible, if I know more stuff about Jesus, if I know more stuff about Christian culture and practices, I actually know Jesus, or I'm growing in my sanctification. So here's what Dr. James Reeves says. He says, because we think we know something in our head, we think we believe it. But the problem is that underneath what we actually believe, I'll read that quote forward for in a second, but he said, but the problem is that what we actually think we believe, underlying it are the things that we actually believe. And he goes into this psychological or psychology kind of teaching on it, and he talks about this thing that's called a limbic lie. You guys know what your limbic system is? Kind of like in the, in the center of your brain, if, if in the physical, they, they point and they go, it's in the middle of your brain. And it's actually like the place where you have a sense of feeling and emotion and connection and all your experiences of life. You actually look through life through this lens of what's going on in that limbic system. And what he says is that we have this, there's this thing called a limbic lie. So you and I, we actually live out of these beliefs that are ingrained in our brain based upon the emotional responses that we've had to trauma or to life throughout all of our, our, our journey. Kind of in, in simple terms, because when you say the word trauma, people go, oh, I've never had traumatic experiences. But what he's saying is that ingrained, in, in, deep into the, of who we are, through all of our experiences, is this way of thinking that's based on a lie. And it's a lie that came through trauma, or through family of origin, or through culture, or just through general life experiences. 
And he says this. He says, this is the quote now you can put up. It says, it's, it's impossible to live in contradiction to what you believe. But we can and we do live in contradiction to what we think we believe. And this happens because the lie has never been dealt with, but merely covered up with knowledge. I want want us to consider that again for a second. It's impossible to live in contradiction to what you believe. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and he is my justification and my righteousness before God. I believe that. I've read that in my Bible. I've been taught that my whole life. But we can and we do live into contradiction to what I think, to what we think we believe. And this happens because the lie that's inside, that's been caused to us through some sort of trauma or some sort of family of origin, some sort of culture, some sort of life experience, has actually never been dealt with through the gospel, through the love and the grace and the acceptance of God. I've merely just covered it up with knowledge. And so this knowledge sits on top of this pain or on top of this hurt, on top of this thing that's happened, but it's actually, I've never wrestled with it. It's never gotten deep down inside. I've never really worked it out. I've never really thought about the implications of Jesus dying on the cross for me in the midst of my father wound. I've never thought about that I'm really actually accepted and loved by God in Christ going back to this breakup that this girl did with me even when I was in middle school, high school, wherever it was for you, college. I've never really thought about what does it mean that Jesus died on the cross and rose again and he sits victoriously at the right hand of God and I'm his child and everything that he's ever done is given to me and I've never actually thought about the impact of what that means on this one experience that I had when I was sitting there and my father said to me, unless you come home with a perfect grade on your paper, I'll be very disappointed in you. Or unless you get a certain type of job or education, you don't really measure up. Or unless you make a certain amount of money, you're not really viewed as that valuable in my eyes and the world won't view you as that valuable either. Unless you grow beyond a certain height, you're never going to be respected and you're going to be limited in the amount that you can earn and the amount of respect that you'll get in this world. Unless you do this, did you guys get the picture? We, We live, unfortunately, in a broken world. And it's within relationship that we're hurt and we're wounded. And these become lies that are within us. And unless they're actually dealt with, what we can say is, yep, I believe that Jesus is my righteousness. I believe that Jesus is my acceptance before God the Father. And I believe that Jesus' worth and value is my own worth and value in my own view and in my own eyes. And I can believe that Jesus' worth and value bestowed on me in that identity is my worth and my value when I walk into a room in front of people. But if I've just taken Christian knowledge and piled it on top of the hurt and the wound and never dealt with it, I actually don't live out of a true belief in Jesus and my righteousness coming from him. Instead, I live out of this knowledge I've piled on top of this lie, but the lie actually is the thing that plays out when I step into any circumstance in life. You guys tracking with me? And so Paul says, if anyone thinks that they are confident of where their righteousness comes from, you need to think about it really carefully because you may not think of it actually the way, you may not believe in it as much as you think. And so what do we do? Let me read you this. Paul says in verse 7 through 11, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul says, before meeting Jesus, I trusted in certain things for righteousness. I viewed certain things as the way that I could, again, be acceptable in God's eyes and also acceptable in the eyes of the church and the community around me. He says, but when I met Jesus, not, not when I got more knowledge about him, he says, but when I actually met him, when I, when I began to, to know him, Paul says, I want to know Christ. And again, when Paul talks about the word know here, it's not, again, it's not knowledge. It's, it's an experiential knowing of. Again, not knowing about him, but actually knowing him in personal relationship. And the way that happens, again, Paul giving us his history here, it's taking this truth of the gospel of who God is, who Christ is, who the Spirit is, the way Father, Son, and Spirit have worked together to bring about this way in which, though I'm sinful and broken, Christ's record of perfection has become mine and when God with his holy eyes looks over at me he doesn't see the weaknesses the brokenness those things he sees the perfection of his son all over me that I'm clothed and that I'm dressed and that I am in Christ Paul says and now I need to take that and believe it and how do I do that I actually again have to take it and work it out into all these different areas of my life so I think what, what Paul does there again he gives this list his his parents raised them into thinking this the community around him cheered him on in all of this. He was even like championed for doing all of these things. But what he's saying is, I had to come to the realization when I actually met the person of Jesus, the living, resurrected Christ, and I knew him personally, I had to take all these things that I had been told, all these things that I had been taught, all these things that I had counted as gain, that I thought were to my favor, I had to look at every single one of them and look at them through eyes of the gospel and the love of God and the acceptance of God has for me in Christ. I had to look at each and every single one and talk about and think about which one is actually to my gain versus which one is rubbish. Meaning, which one is actually a hindrance to me knowing and understanding the gospel and living it out. He said, I basically, I had to do the work of taking the gospel and layering it on top of every single thing and letting it get down and work its way in. Not just take the knowledge of something and put it on top of it, but actually wrestle through it in each of these areas of my life. So that what I actually was living is not what I thought I believed, but what I believed. And Paul says, the way that I get there actually is through knowing Christ and counting knowing Christ as greater than anything else. Having and allowing nothing else to have a grip or a hold on me in such a way that it declares or has any right to name my identity on me. Counting Christ as greater than anything so that you could take anything else out of my life and I'm not wrecked, I'm not rocked because I know that I have Christ. That I can wake up and there's nothing actually that's going to happen in my day to sway it to be this good day, bad day religion. But every single day is a day where I get to walk in the grace of God, even if there's suffering in it, even if there's pain in it. Why? Because I know and I have Christ. But more than that, because Christ has me. He says, I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him. He's saying basically before, when I lived according to this code of these things, thinking that I could somehow gain some of my own righteousness, he's saying I was lost. 
I thought I, I thought I thought I was living the right way. I thought I was living out a life of faith and belief in, in the gospel. He said, but I was actually lost. I was totally lost. But he said, I want to be found in Christ. I want to be found through personal relationship with the resurrected Christ. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ alone, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Again, this passage begs the question, then where, what are we putting our faith in? What are, you, what are we putting our confidence in day to day? Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In verse 9, 10, and 11, they're basically what Paul is stating. He's saying that Jesus is our justification, the one who makes us and justifies us right with God in God's eyes. Jesus is also our sanctification. He is the source of power. It's his resurrection power, and it's him being the resurrected Christ sitting at the right hand of God, as he said in chapter 2. It's him that is the power that allows me to be sanctified, to, to progress in this life of holiness, to become more like Jesus. It's, it's not my power, it's his power. And Jesus also is our hope of glory. He says, by any means possible that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I was thinking about the fact that uh, in Acts, if you go and you read the interaction between Paul, Saul at the time, right? And when he actually meets Jesus. It's 30 years. It's 30 years between that interaction with Saul and the Lord, receiving a new name, understanding the gospel. And it, he didn't go right away and even into his ministry. It says he took, it took three years. There's three years where he went and he wrestled with the church. I think that was probably the period where he was actually wrestling with the reality of, oh my gosh, I grew up with all of these ways of, of thinking and understanding righteousness coming this way. But now I've met the living and resurrected Christ. And the Spirit of God has called me up into a new source of joy and a new source of freedom. Why? Because I understand that these things aren't my source of righteousness. They never were and they never could be. But I have righteousness. I have acceptance in the eyes of God through Jesus Christ alone and putting my faith and my trust in him. I honestly think it wasn't just Paul wrestling with the church and thinking about, like, you know, is he thinking and teaching, going to go do that? I bet it was three years probably of him doing his own work. Again, wrestling with, this is what I've been taught. This is what I grew up with. These are the things I'm holding on to. But this is actually where life and freedom is. It's in Jesus. Not in these external things. Not in these law things. Not in these systematic things. 30 years of wrestling working it out, where he would come and he'd say in, in chapter, excuse me, verse 12, which we'll talk more about next week, but he says, not that I've already obtained this or that I'm perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, Missy, what I, what I want to encourage you with this morning is to hear and to know and to believe that you are this morning, as you sit here, accepted in the eyes of God just as you are. There is nothing that you have to do today or tomorrow or any other day in the future that will make you acceptable or lovable in the sight and the eyes of God. 
if you are placing your trust in Jesus. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing else. And so when I get in the fight with my wife tomorrow, I hope that doesn't happen. But if that happens, and then afterwards I've, I'm sitting there and I'm beating myself up. Oh, I'm such a bad husband. Oh, I'm such a bad dude. Oh, da, 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 da. What I need to do in that moment in order to stop the tapes and the lies that play out about my acceptance in the eyes of God, my acceptance in the eyes of people, my acceptance, I need to sit there in that moment and just talk to Jesus. And repent, right? Confess it. And go, Lord, I acknowledge that in this moment, what I did there was not loving towards my wife. That was based upon my old, my old wound. That was based upon my hurt. But I acknowledge I did that. Lord, would you forgive me? I, I, I put this at the feet of your cross and believe that in confessing this, I'm freed and I'm forgiven from it. And I don't have to then go on and deal with the whole day of thinking and the lies. And the, you, am I alone in this? this? This is my process, right? You guys know, anybody with me? Or, or my kids act a fool and I, then I act a fool. And, I, and then the thing, you're a bad dad. You know, no, 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 like, I, again, I can do that if I want. But Paul's saying that, that's not joyful living. That's not victorious living. That's not believing and understanding the power of the resurrection here now present in your life, which you can if you live by faith in Jesus and trusting that he alone, again, is your acceptance even when you act a fool. And believing that when God with his holy eyes looks at you, he actually looks at you and he sees you as perfectly holy, lovable, and acceptable because it's the perfection of the life of Christ placed upon you when you're living in Christ. And God sees you like that and says, come, let me help you. Let me empower you to understand this more and more instead of living in a lie repeated over and over and over again in my head. So I want to encourage you with that this morning, church, that You're loved and you're accepted by God just as you are right now when you look to Christ in faith, believing that his death, his resurrection is your life, is your perfection, is your righteousness, your acceptance before God. And I want to encourage you to be vigilant about engaging with the lies that you hear in your head. Vigilant about the lies that you hear in culture that tell you your performance, your your ability to do this and that, you doing certain things is what makes you acceptable to them or to God or to anyone else. How many of you guys have performance reviews at work? I have them. They're good things, actually, right? They hold us accountable to stewardship, right? And that's what they're there for. But when those performance reviews, which are a good thing, become the ultimate thing, (laughs) my worth and my value and my job, my worth and my value, they ultimately become... A bad thing because they've become this ultimate thing that is telling me what to do. When I take anything else that's actually a good thing that helps me, that can encourage me, but when I count that as a gain, that as the key thing that is helping me understand who I am and my worth and value in my own eyes or God's eyes, Paul's saying here, what you need to do is actually learn how to count that as a loss. Whatever privilege, whatever power, whatever pedigree, whatever, whatever it is, that the world would take and hold and say, this is a good thing for you. For us as believers, we have to have to begin to look at that thing and go, man, if I lost that, what would it mean for me? Would I still believe that I'm acceptable and lovable to myself, to God, to others? Or what would that do to my life? See, church, when Jesus died on the cross at Calvary, uh, we're told that inside the temple there was this curtain and the curtain was torn, and the curtain was split. And the reason why that happened is it was God saying that what Christ has done through his death and through his resurrection was the final thing. 
There is no longer a need to live by the Old Testament ceremonial system. That has been fulfilled in Jesus. And there is no need to live by any other system in order for God to love you or view you as acceptable. It's fulfilled and complete in Jesus. And that that's, that's true about you today if you believe in Christ. And so what do we do with this? If Jesus has freed me from performance and yet I don't always function and live in that, what do I need to do? Here's a, here's a question I, I have for you I want to leave you with. What do you hold as gain that actually needs to be counted as loss for the sake of Christ? What do you have in your life, as Paul did, that you currently hold as gain that you actually need to count as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ? Because what Paul is telling us and teaching us here is that the things that we hold as gain in our lives up next to Christ, it's Jesus and it's me having this, are the very things that keep us from experiencing the freedom, the righteousness, the joy, and be able to rejoice in the Lord as he started off with. And we need to learn to look at those things and go, God, what is it that I hold as next to you, equal to you, or above you? Paul says, I count it as all as lost for the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And because we're in the season of Lent, which is actually a great time to think about what we hold and what we count of, I want to I read you this quote. This, this is actually the closing. <laughs> this is Paul David Tripp, and he says this. He says, Lent is an important tool in the inescapable battle that rages in all of our hearts between worship and service of the Creator and worship and service of the creation. Lent calls us to remember once again that sin reduces us all to idolaters somehow, some way. It gives us a season to take time and reflect on things that have taken too strong a hold on us, things that we have come to crave too strongly and love too dearly. It reminds us that often things that we are holding tightly have actually taken an even tighter hold on us. So we're in the season of Lent. We're we're two weeks in. And let me say this really clearly. If you don't participate in, in Lent, you're okay. God accepts you. You hear me? has nothing to do with your salvation. But if you want a place or a tool or a practice or a season that invites you to learn how to live in the joy of the Lord, that one that teaches you how to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, engaging in his suffering, becoming like him even to the place of death so that I can experience resurrection, you're, you're in that season, friends. Lent is a season where we get to experience loss and suffering through detaching from something or, or acknowledging, looking at my life again through the lens of the gospel and saying, I hold on to this thing way too tightly or actually it has a hold on me. And so what I'm going to do for a season, not because it has anything to do with gaining my salvation, but me working out my salvation with some fear and trembling, is I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to put it for 40 days under the magnifying glass or under the scope of the gospel and see how this thing is impacting and affecting my heart. And what I'm going to do is actually consider this thing that I love and hold so much or consider gain. I'm going to count it a loss, even to the point I'm going to not engage with that or not do that thing. I'm going to whatever. In order, I'm going to pick up this other gospel practice, this, this thing of grace, in order for me to live out and experience and allow the beauty and the majesty and the goodness of Christ and the gospel, the truth that I am fully and wholly loved by God through his son Jesus Christ and the work and the things that he has done, not because of anything that I have done. I want to learn how to wrestle and live that out and play that out and battle that out against the lies that tell me otherwise where I feel like I'm outside of God's righteousness and outside of the community of grace. 
So I'd encourage you, again, not because it adds anything to your salvation, but because it would encourage you, and it's a practical way that we could live and walk that out as a season, in this season together as a church. Amen? You hear me? Yeah? Church, you're loved by God perfectly, holy. There's nothing else you need to do. And I hope that as we even sing this next song and worship that, um, yeah, just the Spirit would minister to you about who you are, about who Christ is, and we begin even to speak to you and to your heart in the places of where you, you need to consider and wrestle with. And God's inviting you to wrestle with and let go something that has been so dear, such a gain, to say, you know what? No longer is that the thing that, that holds me. But Jesus, I believe that you alone hold me, that you alone are healing me, that you alone are the power and the source of my, my sanctification so that I can experience and live a joyful life in Christ.